This year not only marks the end of 2020, thank God, but also the 55th anniversary of the disappearance of the infamous Beaumont children, one of Australia's most notorious unsolved missing child cases. January 26, 1966, also known as Australia Day, three children went missing from Glenelg Beach in Adelaide, South Australia. Jane, who was nine years old, Arna, who was seven, and Grant, four, went to enjoy the beach on the sweltering summer afternoon. But when they failed to return home, their parents had feared the worst. Did the children run away? Was it an untimely drowning or a death? Or was there more sinister plot at play here? I'm your host, Michael, and this is Strange and Unexplained. It was a sweltering day in Australia. Jane, Arna, and their brother Grant asked their mother Nancy if they could spend the day at the beach. Of course, these were different times, then, now, and this was nothing unusual for kids around their age to do. Jane, the oldest, was known for being a very responsible child for her age, and their mother agreed. The children were given money for the bus and to get lunch. Their mother gave them eight shillings and six pence. In other words, a handful of change which proved to be an important clue later in this investigation. So remember that. So the three children head off and were due to return on the 12 o'clock bus, but failed to show up. Their mother was not worried, though. She thought they just lost track of time and maybe missed the bus. She waited for the next bus to come. But at 2 p.m., when the bus showed up, again, the doors opened and shut without the children aboard. It was then that the mother first began to worry. Nancy phoned her husband, Jim, who had been at work, and he headed home immediately. Jim and Nancy headed out to the beach and started searching for the girls. They called friends and family that lived in the area to make sure they hadn't gone to anyone's house or anything like that. They combed the beach looking for signs of the children's belongings. Jane had been carrying a small white bag that day. They knew that for sure, but found nothing. That wasn't the only thing the children were carrying. We'll we'll find out more later. So around 5 p.m., after exhausting everywhere they could think of, the Beaumonts made the decision to finally go to the police. They filed a missing persons report, and immediately a massive search was launched. You could imagine three small children going missing all at once. This is no, this is no coincidence. So a large search party searched the beaches and surrounding areas. They searched anywhere in town that the children may have wandered off to, and they questioned potential witnesses. And that is when fear really began to sit in. Within 24 hours of filing the missing persons report, the entire nation knew the Beaumont children's names and faces, as they were placed on the front of every paper. What followed would be the largest search in Australian history. The day the kids went missing, witnesses alleged that they saw the children. One woman said she saw them near a marina. She even spoke with them. The marina was drained and searched, an area of about 70 acres. It turned up nothing. The kids had been carrying several items with them that day. In addition to the white bag that Jane was carrying, they had towels, they had money, you know, change, clothes, and other items that were carried in a green airway bag. 
When they found nothing, their suspicion that the children had drowned began to fade, and a darker narrative began to take shape, as you would imagine. Other witnesses began to come forward, claiming they saw the children playing in a sprinkler in a public lawn near the beach. The witnesses testified that she first noticed that there was a man watching them, and she noticed him because he was watching them creepily. He then began to play with the children. Creepily was her word, by the way. That's in quotes. But he then began to play with the children, and they seemed comfortable with him, as if they knew him. Another witness confirmed the children were with the man and said they thought it was odd that the man who appeared to be in his 30s was helping nine-year-old Jane put her shorts on when she was perfectly capable of dressing herself. One witness even spoke to the man when he came up and asked, quote, Have you seen anyone around our stuff? Quote, Someone stole our money. So he's speaking to other people, other witnesses, and using the terms our as if he is with these children. The woman said she had not seen anything, and the children and the man headed off in the direction of public dressing rooms near the beach. The children were witnessed outside the changing room waiting on the man. All of the witnesses said they didn't call the police because the children didn't seem to be in trouble, but seemed comfortable with him, and even appeared to, to kind of know the man, so there was no need to raise an alarm in their opinion. A later discovery found that the children had visited a nearby bakery, which they were familiar with, as they had been there several times before. They ordered three pastries and one meat pie. Okay, now some reports only mention the meat pie, and they only mention this meat pie because the kids never ordered a meat pie. That everyone that knew these children, when they heard this testimony from from the uh, bakery, they knew that the meat pie was for somebody else. These kids wanted pastries, right? They're kids. They're at a bakery. They want pastries, and they always ordered pastries. So, just a little tidbit there I thought was very important. The chef at the bakery said he remembered it because the children had been in before and had ordered the same pastries. The children had also paid with a one-pound note, which they were not given when they left that day. So, as far as anyone could tell, the last known sighting of the kids was at that bakery. So it was becoming more and more evident that the kids had been abducted. The description that each witness gave matched the next. It was a white male who appeared to be in his 30s and between 5 foot 10 and 6 foot tall. He was a tall, slender slash athletic build with light blonde hair and a long face. He was said to be wearing a blue Speedo style swimming trunks. Again, this was a very uncommon event. Child abduction in Australia was extremely unlikely, and the children from all aspects seemed to be safe and comfortable with this man. Jim and Nancy always thought it was odd that James seemed so comfortable with this man. She was a mature and responsible girl, but she was also very shy and timid. Why she trusted this man enough to let her guard down is very unclear to her parents. What did he do to lure the children away? So the government ended up offering a $6,000 reward for information leading to the return of these children, and another $5,000 was offered by a Melbourne newspaper. Sightings came in by the thousands of people who had potentially seen a man with three children, a boy and two girls, matching the description of the man seen with the children on the beach that day. But still, nothing came up. 
Over the years, the Beaumonts would give many false hopes, would be given many false hopes, rather, as time after time, they were led to believe that their children had been spotted. One came just months after the girls went missing when a witness came forward and said she saw a man enter a house with three children, a boy and two girls. She said she believed the house was empty. The house was searched. Nothing was found. Why the, wait- why the lady waited so long to come forward about this is very unclear to me. That just seems like a very bad decision. Whatever went down in that house, done long gone. Then, when expert resident psychic Gerard Croissant, Croiss, hmm, I'm probably going to ruin his name, Croissette, maybe, a self-proclaimed Dutch clairvoyant, came to town, again, the Beaumonts were given a false hope. Imagine that. But you gotta, people often uh, give parents and surviving family members a lot of shit for turning to these clairvoyants. But you have to understand, these people have exhausted everything else. You know, and, and as a parent, when a child goes missing, or when someone you love, period, goes missing, and there's no closure, what have you got to lose, right? These, these clairvoyants, these psychics, these people have been around this long for a reason. Because sometimes they get that shit right. Sometimes they do, right? There's a reason that it's lasted this long. Or it could just be the desperate attempts of us here on earth, trying to make contact with lost loved ones, and the hope and the longing of that is strong enough to keep this entire profession alive, maybe. Either, anyway, this clairvoyant offered up failed attempt after failed attempt to locate the children. He even flew out to Australia to meet with Jim and Nancy, but again, his predictions turned up nothing. His most notable failure being the most costly, and his last, imagine that, when Croissette predicted the kids were buried under a two to three meter concrete slab in a local warehouse. Two to three meters deep, okay? Concrete slab at a local warehouse, not far from where the children were last seen. The public was able to raise over $7,000 to dig up and replace the floor. The search proved to be a waste of time and resources as nothing was found. Croissette returned to his home country, making no progress and delivering only more heartache. Another such heartbreak would come when the Beaumonts would receive letters written as if they were from Jane. This is, this is so terrible. I, I, don't, I don't really understand people that do this. I mean, they are, they are nearly just as bad as the people that commit these crimes, in my opinion. This is some fucked up stuff right here. But they would receive letters written as if they were from Jane. In the letter, she explained how the man had taken them and was taking very good care of them. She also explained that his reasoning for taking the children is because he thought someone needed to look after and care for them correctly. In the letters, Jane claimed the man was wanting to return the children to their parents, as he now believed that they did care about their children. So the Beaumonts went to the meeting place at the assigned time in these letters with a private investigator that they had hired, and you guessed it, nobody showed. Figures. They received a letter that said that they would not be getting the children back because they had shown up with a police officer, even though they were instructed to come alone. 
But years down the road, fingerprint analysis would reveal that the man who wrote the letters had been a teenager in high school at the time the kids were taken. And he wrote the letters as a very cruel and sick prank. That's ex- understatement of the century. That's so fucked up. So the Beaumont case was also known well because of the amount of potential suspects that would come under suspicion of abducting these children. The police in Adelaide had their choice of suspect, but somehow not one person was ever actually tied to the case. That's, that's it's so funny. It's almost like there was too much to choose from. They had too much going on. And then again, some of these suspects just got ruled out because they weren't suspects until much later on, and by then, they had passed or were too senile to even hold up in court. But a few of the notable mentions, notable suspects are, rather, author Stanley Brown, who according to his wiki bio, was an Australian man charged in 1998 for the 26th of August 1970 rape and murder of Judith and Susan Mackey in Townsville, Queensland. The jury failed to reach a verdict, and a new trial was blocked on the grounds that Brown was too senile to be tried again. Crazy, right? So that's 1970. Uh, Don Storen. He was mostly known for sexually assaulting young boys between the ages of 13 and 15. So why would he take two young girls that weren't even that age yet, with the oldest being nine? Right? So just knowing the history of these sexual predators and the way that they have a type, the way that they continue to go after these same types of people, I think it's pretty safe that we can rule out Don Storen. Okay? Now there's another gentleman by the name of Anthony Monroe. Definitely not a gentleman. I shouldn't even give him that much respect. But he was convicted of sexual assault on an 11-year-old boy around the same time. Okay, again, uh, Grant was younger, much younger than 11, uh, four to five years, I would say. So if, if Jane was the oldest and she was nine, it went down from there, okay? So, but the next suspect brings me to who I believe did this crime, a man by the name of Alan Maxwell McIntyre. He lived nearby and according to his children, lived quite the checkered past. He was also known to hang around Mr. Anthony Monroe, who, like I told you, was already convicted of sexual assault on an 11-year-old boy. So this excerpt that I'm about to read you is from the Sydney Morning Herald, and it's said to be the testimony of Alan Maxwell McIntyre's son, whose name is Andrew. This is directly from the Sydney Morning Herald. It says, In a statutory declaration, Andrew McIntyre claimed he was meant to go with his father and Monroe to Glenelg Beach to do some diving, but was told to stay home. This is the day of, okay? This is from Andrew McIntyre's diary. He kept a diary as a child. He was told to stay home, and they went. His father and Monroe, Anthony Monroe, who he names by name, went with other young men to the beach that day. But upon returning, he said that when they came home, they were both upset, and his father had his hands on his head, pacing back and forth, going, shit, shit, shit. So Mr. McIntyre, or Andrew, his son, claims there was sand and blood in Anthony Monroe's car. And the daughter of McIntyre, 
Andrew's sister, goes even further. She says her father came home wearing a bloodied shirt, and extraordinarily, she claims she saw the children's bodies in the back of the car. The siblings have demanded that a filled-in well on their father's property outside of Adelaide be dug up, though the well still to this day remains undisturbed. I want to play you a clip from an interview with McIntyre's daughter about their father's involvement with not only this case, but many, many more like it. Right, so I was born in 1973, um, and I grew up in a suburb of Adelaide in South Australia called Edwardstown. I'm speaking to you today about an organised group of pedophiles in South Australia who abused me physically, sexually, emotionally, and through satanic ritual abuse spiritually throughout my childhood. What I suffered at their hands was terrible, but what I was forced to witness being done to other children was far worse. During my childhood, I witnessed the murders of six children. My father, Alan Maxwell McIntyre, was directly involved in all six of those murders. He also forced me to watch him dismember a further two children. I know where two of those children are buried. My half-brother, Andrew McIntyre, who was born in 1952, backs up my allegations against our father as he too was sexually, emotionally and physically abused by him. Andrew was also forced to perform multiple body disposals at our father's behest, incinerating them, then burying them, those remains at our former home in Edwardstown, South Australia. It is Andrew's intention to discuss these matters with your tribunal at a future date. We have another sibling, my half-sibling and Andrew's full sibling, Ruth Collins, who also corroborates our allegations of sexual and emotional abuse against our father in countless documents and statutory declarations which she has written to your authorities over the past 12 years. In fact, Ruth is named in three books by individual authors naming her as the only credible witness to have made allegations about what happened to the Beaumont children. The case of the three missing Beaumont children is a globally known instance of multiple child abductions from the same family. On Australia Day 1966, nine-year-old Jane, seven-year-old Anna and four-year-old Grant Beaumont disappeared from the beach at Glenelg, an outer suburb of Adelaide. Since that date, local Adelaide newspapers and media outlets have kept up a running commentary about that terrible event and how the disappearance of the three innocent children changed the way Australian parents looked after their kids forever. It is considered one of Australia's most baffling cold cases. Andrew corroborates Ruth's account of what happened at our home on Australia Day 1966 and what occurred in the weeks both before and afterward. Both Ruth and Andrew have alleged that both our father and Anthony Munro were involved in the abduction and disappearance of Jane, Anna and Grant Beaumont. Whilst that is Ruth and Andrew's story to tell, I bring it to your attention as my father has been widely named as a person of interest in the disappearance of the Beaumont children since 2007. Google his name and countless articles appear naming Alan Maxwell McIntyre as a person of interest in that case. My father was never charged, never prosecuted by South Australian police, not for the sexual abuse of his three children and not for the murders that he committed. Alan Maxwell McIntyre died a free man on the 13th of June 2017. He lived out his life openly bragging about the fact that none of his children could ever have him charged with incest as he had immunity from prosecution because of his knowledge concerning important people. 
Two more witnesses have come forward and made allegations in 2018 to South Australian police. Those allegations being that our father's close associate and twice convicted pedophile, Anthony Munro, was involved in the abduction and disappearance of the Beaumont children. In fact, my father named Anthony Munro on camera as being responsible for the Beaumont children's disappearance in a filmed interview with journalist Brian Littley in 2015. Adding to validating the five or four mentioned witness allegations that Anthony Munro, also known as Tony Munro, was involved in the Beaumont abductions is a salvage and expedition diary co-written by my brother, Andrew, in 1966. This diary chronicles the activities of our father, Anthony Munro, and several members of a men and boys salvage and expedition club, which put them all on Glenelg Beach in the days and weeks leading up to the Beaumont disappearance. Although Ruth, Andrew and myself were unable to have our father incarcerated for our abuse, my brother Andrew had, has had success in incarcerating one of his perpetrators for child sex abuse. In 2016, Andrew and another man had Anthony Munro convicted and sentenced to 10 years jail for the brutal sex abuse they endured in the 1960s. Allegedly, the offences occurred at the same time of the Beaumont children's disappearance. I allege that the Salvage and Expedition Club, of which Anthony Munro and my father were members, was in fact an adjunct to another of my father's sordid <coughs> group, which also predated upon children. The second group I refer to has been dubbed by local media as the family. It is my allegation that my father was this particular group's body boy. Allegedly, the family have enjoyed well-documented protection from legal prosecution for decades. The family abuses have been felt by hundreds of victims in Adelaide and beyond since the 1950s. Many of those victims, including myself, have been vocal about that abuse. In fact, there was an inquiry in 2007 into the treatment of South Australian children in state care known as the Mulligan Inquiry Commission of Report and also titled Children in State Care Commission of Inquiry, Allegations of Sexual Abuse and Death from Criminal Conduct as a result of the countless statements of former awards alleging abuse at the hands of this organised sadistic group of pedophiles. These abuse state wars have been dubbed the takeaway kids. Okay, so I think you guys get the idea. Um, it's pretty convincing. And this interview is like an hour and 20 minutes. The link to the full video is below the description. The link to her, the rest of this interview, as well as an interview with her brother Andrew, are both available um, on YouTube. So if you guys want to hear more about this testimony, um, I cut the video here because she starts going into more of the the underground uh, child trafficking ring and whatnot in Australia in that area and the ring that she believes that her father and Anthony Monroe were involved in. Um, not that that's not important and not that that doesn't need to get out, um, but that's a whole other episode. <laughs> that's a that's That's a whole other thing right there. Uh, maybe I will try to cover that in the future as well, because there is a lot of information out there on that as well. Um, much like, you know, many of you know, in the U.S., with the whole Jeffrey Epstein shit and the, you know, the uh, Pizzagate and all that, Australia is not immune to that, just like any other country. So, 
Um, also, something else worth noting before I before I before I let Lauren take the stage here and give the Lauren synopsis, I have to say one more thing about Anthony Monroe. I was looking up pictures of him um, earlier today, and I'll be damned if he don't match that description, guys. In 1966, Anthony Monroe was not a very slim. I would. I mean, he was very slender. He was. He was athletic. I would say he was athletic build. He had sandy blonde hair. He had a long, thin face. And in this one picture that I seen him, he's even wearing a very small pair of swim trunks. I wouldn't say a speedo. They're more of like a like a um, uh, what do you call them? Not quite as long as a boxer brief, but they still have like shorts on them. I don't really. I can't remember what you call those. Um, but either way, they're not quite uh, briefs, but they're not quite boxer briefs either. They're kind of in the middle. Um, and that's what he was wearing. So it wouldn't be much of a stretch to say that he was there that day. I mean, I, I believe these children. I just believe there wasn't enough circumstantial evidence. Uh, there wasn't enough hard evidence to convict them, especially not in the 60s. Um, so that's my opinion, guys. They're unfortunately, I thought this case was bad enough when I first looked into it, and like many missing children cases, sometimes you uncover a damn uh, a damn anthill, you know what I'm saying? And they just keep coming. Just the shit keeps rolling out, so. But, uh, so, without further ado, guys, let's get into this week's Lauren Synopsis. It's time for Lauren. It's time for Lauren Synopsis. Breaking down the case like. Breaking down the case like cardboard boxes. It's time for Lauren. It's time for Lauren Synopsis. Breaking down the case like. Breaking down the case like cardboard boxes. It's time for Lauren. It's time for Lauren Synopsis. Breaking down the case like. Breaking down the case like cardboard boxes. What's up, people? Lauren here, here to get my thoughts on this week's Strange and Unexplained, the 1966 disappearance of the Beaumont children, nine-year-old Jane, seven-year-old Arna, and four-year-old Grant, who, with their parents' permission, took a bus to the beach in South Adelaide back in 1966 on Australia Day, which is like our equivalent of Fourth of July in America, and went to the beach and were spotted by several witnesses in different locations. And uh, most importantly, they were spotted on the beach with a man with a slender face, a tall, blonde, thin-faced man with a suntan complexion and somewhat of an athletic build who was approximated to be in his uh, mid-30s, early to mid-30s. Um, this man was playing with them, frolicking with them in, uh, in the sand and then was last seen helping them get dressed and leave the beach. And then also they were seen at a pastry store where they were buying some uh, meat pies, which according to their family, they would not be purchasing for themselves. And you can imagine three children in a pastry shop, they would want something other than a meat pie. They'd want some pastries, some sweet stuff, some good stuff. Um, they, following that, um, I, I believe they were seen by a mailman at like 11 a.m. And... Um, They've never been seen again in 55 years. There's never been remains found, even though there's been several um, locations dug up, including a home, after a psychic uh, predicted that their bodies would be under this, like, red brick shed or something on someone's property, and they finally got permission to dig it up, and, of course, nothing was there. 
I have my thoughts on psychics that get involved in missing persons cases. Um, I feel like not always, but most of the time they're trying to take advantage of a situation and benefit financially from it and get some, um, get their word out there about them, some notoriety. Um, if that is what they're doing, it's, I think it's sad. I hope that's not the case. I hope they're truly trying to help, but most of the time they come up empty. Um, so 55 years goes by. They're not seen, and there's been many suspects that have popped up, but nothing has ever been, no one's ever been convicted, and nothing's ever gone further than, you know, some strong suspicion in certain ways. Um, the one that I felt the strongest about, the one that kind of um, stuck out the most to me was Arthur Stanley Brown. I know the main, one of the biggest suspects was uh, Bevan Spencer Von Enum, who had... Uh, been sentenced for killing a 15-year-old boy. Um, that threw me off. And also the fact that the age didn't really line up. But I, I feel like it's rare that, um, you know, a, a sexual predator killer targets uh, multiple genders. They usually have uh, an age group and a gender that they target. Like in, in Enum's instance, it was boys. And that continued in prison. He was, I mean, it was Sodom, he had sodomized the victim that he had killed the 15-year-old boy. It was a sexual thing. I don't see him abducting three girls. I, I mean, obviously it's happened. They've, there's been crossovers, but I feel like it's very rare. And he would have been in his early, he would have been like 20 at the time that the three children were abducted. And this man that was seen to be with the children on that day, who was definitely the abductor, was uh, targeted to be somewhere in his 30s. Arthur Stanley Brown, however, everything I just said is kind of silly because he would have been 53 at the time. So he would have been much older than people said. But I could see someone mistaking a 53-year-old that looks fit and, you know, it's it's the beach. But the things line up other than the age. Um, I feel like when you look at the picture, that's the biggest thing. You look at the picture of him and you hear the description of what this man looked like. He is... He's a, and also there was a sketch that was drawn that I haven't seen, but apparently he, Arthur Stanley Brown looks exactly like the sketch and he has a thin face with bony facial structure, just like was described. And he is a sexual predator who had, uh, strangled young girls, um, and fits the, the criteria on that. And there's obviously been a bunch of other suspects, but it's been 55 years so even the even the young children, the two girls and the, and the young boy, would be in their 60s and 70s at this point um, if they were still alive. And I think we all know that they've been dead for a long time. Um, this is not—I don't think this is a situation where they're going to turn up and they've been being held captive for 55 years. I don't see that happening. If it was going to happen, it would have happened by now. They would have hit a certain age where the three of them together would have been able to get out of their situation, you would have hoped, and, and um, go to the media or go to a local police station or something. But I think they were um, sadly killed shortly after their abduction. Um, and I don't know that we'll ever know because so many people involved in this case, the parents obviously have been dead for a while, and the police officers that worked the initial disappearance, you know, you're talking 55 years, that's a long time. So I don't think we'll ever get closure on this case. Maybe some hidden, you know, notes or diary where something will pop up or 
a deathbed confession from a 90-year-old suspect that did this, you know, something along those lines. That's all we can hope for at this point. But if I had to put money on it from just what I've read about the different suspects, I would I'd say the highest likelihood, in my opinion, is Arthur Stanley Brown. He seems to fit the description and the mold as far as the victims that he liked to target um, would, would have fit. Um, so, yeah, that's my thoughts. Uh, hope you guys enjoyed it. See you next week. All right, guys. Uh, there you go. You heard it from Lauren. He thinks author Stanley Brown. It's a possibility. It's a possibility. I'm not ruling it out. Uh, I'm not ruling it out at all. I just feel like these these children of McIntyre, um, I just feel like what, what do they have to lose to come forward and say these things about their dads? If anything, if their dad, rather, I said dads, <laughs> but if, the, if anything, they would be... I feel like they would have fear of prosecution or hate or death threats. Um, I just don't think many people have the nerve or um, <laughs> or maybe they have too much sense to come out and talk about how their father was this horrible person and that they have evidence of this. But these children were just victims themselves. So this speaking up, it takes tremendous bravery. Um, and I just, I don't, feel like they have any reason to lie. I really don't. So that's, I'm sticking with mine. I still think it's uh, old Maxwell McIntyre and um, Anthony Monroe. That's who I believe is responsible. And unfortunately, I don't think this case will ever, you know, legally be solved. So guys, that's the Beaumont children. Like I said, maybe there'll be a follow-up case um, because this case, much like the Johnny Gosh case did a long time ago when I looked into it, it's opened my eyes to a whole new world of, of, of child abuse and, and human trafficking, which I feel like is one of the most important things that we need to spread awareness about in our country, in our world, in our entire world. We have to protect our children. Uh, we have to protect the future of this earth. So guys, with that being said, thank you. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, thank you for sticking with this one. I know some parts are might be hard to hear. So thank you so much uh, for supporting this podcast, for listening to this podcast. Um, if you would like to support this podcast further, check out patreon.com slash podcast. And guys, for just three bucks a month, you get early access to every episode. The episodes will be released on Thursdays um, instead of Mondays, as well as extra shows I do like The Palate Cleanser and Strange Shorts. And at the $5 level, you also get a strange and unexplained exclusive Patreon sticker shipped to you ASAP, okay? So thank you guys so much. That's patreon.com slash podcast. So moving on, maybe uh, Patreon's not for you. Maybe you're not in the financial stance to be able to do that right now. I totally understand. Guys, another great way to help the show is just to subscribe, download, tell your friends, and leave a review. I love, I love reading reviews, and also it'll give you a shout on the show like I'm about to do for Cowboy D911. Says the only thing that would make it better would be a synopsis at the end. Oh wait, fire, right? The Lorne's synopsis, Lorne's, <laughs> the Lorne's synopsis, right? Something to look forward to at every show. Um, so guys, thank you so much. The new reviews really help new listeners. Uh, sharing the show on social media at S&U Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, 
and Twitter. Guys, you can follow along there. If you have a case suggestion, you can DM me on any of those sites at Podcast, or you can send me an email at sandupodcast at gmail.com. So when in doubt, S&U, Sandu Podcast, okay? So thank you guys so much for listening, and I'll see you guys next week with another strange and unexplained case. Remember, be strange. Just don't be a stranger. <laughs>